So welcome to Arash's World. Now, Arash's World is um, a blog that I've had for, for over 10 years now. And um, it is a philosophy blog. And I was curious to see that you actually started off with philosophy as well. Um, I started off with philosophy with the blog, but then I'm moving towards, towards health and wellness uh, as well. And that's been my main focus. Today is a very special day for me because it's my son's birthday. He's turned 12. But it's also three years ago, I made a, a solemn pledge to myself about health because my health was going downhill. And it was uh, at a point where I was obese. I've lost uh, 30 pounds since then, actually no, 50 pounds since then. Uh, and I said to myself, it cannot continue like this anymore. I have to take that seriously. And so as someone who uh, you have um, both you an explorer of inner and, and outer space, um, I'd love to hear first a bit about your story. How did that happen? How did you move from philosophy to Zen? And then I would love to talk to you more about Zen because I, for me as a teen, Zen was the, the most important part of my life. Yeah. I'll give you yeah. details about that. I sense from your story, Arash, that we share a common interest in trying to figure out what's this all about? <laughs> you know, what's going on here? Pretty much it, since day one. Since, since I day one. Up. There you go. There you go. It, when I was a little girl, the most exciting thing going on in the world at that time, in my world at that time, was the space flight. You know, we were going into space. And, and somehow I saw that as a way to bring peace on earth you know somehow you know it was also a time of war the vietnam war was raging and the and the and it felt like if we could all be united in going into space and we quit fighting with each other i mean that's the way it worked in my young mind and then i was i was so sold on this dream when my parents said to me well you know you could go into space you know and I'm, oh really you know, i was still a little kid right they go you could go right now and they they um my father took me into the kitchen where we had this tall, skinny closet. It was a broom closet. Maybe you know the type, you know, where the broom and the mops and the vacuums and the dish rags and stuff are kept. They took all that stuff out. And in my little childhood mind, I could imagine, well, this looked a little bit like a spaceship. You know, and you put my sister and I in it and close the door. And we started to hear the, the NASA countdown, the 10, 9, 8. And I was, I was like, fancifully imagining what was going to happen, what could possibly happen. Then he gets to three, two, one, and suddenly the door starts vibrating. <laughs> and I say to my sister, I think we're going somewhere. <laughs> he had pushed the vacuum cleaner up against the door and turned oh, it on. <laughs> but I just tell this story because that became my capital D dream from that day onward. I. I I was writing NASA by the time I was 13 years old, saying, what classes do I take in junior high school to best prepare me for my life as an astronaut? And they wrote back. I mean, they actually said it didn't matter for junior high school, but you should study science and math. So I did. I um, started taking every math and science class under the sun. I, I, they gave me a whole list of things I should look at majoring in college. And, and one of them was physics, which is the major I chose. But alongside, I really, again, like you, wanted to explore the, I want to say the philosophical aspects of what's going on in addition to the scientific aspects. So I also got a second degree in philosophy and uh, then went on to biophysics to understand. I got very interested in energy and how energy works in the human being. So I studied the nervous system in graduate school in the early days of neuroscience and got a degree in biophysics that's with my doctorates in. And when I got out of graduate school, I um, saw a little ad in my first job, I saw a little ad in a trade journal that they were advertising for astronaut applications. So I had mine in the next day. And indeed, uh, to abbreviate the story, I worked for NASA for a decade, eventually went into management, not space. <laughs> I became the deputy manager for integrating the space station. and in that leadership role, I could really see how the deep training that I had known since college days when I also started training in martial arts, which led to Zen. Zen is a physical practice to augment the physical training of martial arts. Uh, so the meditation practice. When I was 
in leadership roles, I could see where this deep training could really help leaders at a whole different level than it was being taught in leadership programs. So I wanted to do that. And it just became a calling for me that um, changed the, the direction of my life. And for the last 25 years, I've been working with this mind, body, and energy in leadership in, develop in helping leaders develop for, wow, the wild times that we're in. Absolutely. Oh, that's, uh, that's wonderful. So, um, and it's also what really grabbed me with uh, it says that you're the founder of the Zen Institute and here for leadership. And to combine those things, I think that's, that's just a wonderful thing. Um, what, what Zen for me uh, has done as a, as a teen is uh, it, it opened my eyes to, to many things. And uh, I was really fascinated by, by that world. And at some point I thought, why would it be a good idea to go to a monastery, to live the rest of my life in a monastery, that kind of ideal that one has? And then I kept thinking, and that's still as a teen, but I said, no, I want to have that mindset, but try to incorporate in the real world, right? Mm -hmm. And try to, to bring um, that kind of mindset to, um, to myself and then to share it with others. But um, after a while, I uh, did not follow it because it's the, the strict, very strict discipline. Like, oh, I have no problems with discipline, but I've always, when I think of Zen, I think of the stick, you know, and, <laughs> and being beaten. And I know it's like, it would be a strict kindness if, if we could put it that way. And uh, that's helpful. But that kind of, um, I could say, that kind of turned me off in a, in a way. And I didn't follow it. It was still in the back of my mind. And three years ago, I started like uh, using psychoanalysis on myself, basically self uh, psychoanalyze. And psychoanalysis, after a while, I realized, wait a minute, that's the same thing. It's exactly mm -hmm. like Zen. And then mm -hmm. I found Erich Fromm's book, who talked about Zen and the art of psychoanalysis. And it's like, yes, that mm -hmm. being like slightly above the ground, that feeling of like feeling elevated and um, um, feeling that everything is an accomplishment, like brushing your teeth is an accomplishment, living your day, and that not bringing all your baggage to the world that we have or our trauma, but try to heal. And uh, a part of uh, your work is also healing. I've, uh, I've read the healing through, through resonance. And, and that just like, yes, you can combine the two. And it, it gets me back to a book I saw um, years ago, The Powers of Ten. And it shows you images from space, like far out, far out, as far out as we can go. And then it keeps zooming in into this hand of this person in the United States, I think, lying on the beach. And then it, get, it went really deep. And then it was the same picture. It was exactly identical. And so inner and outer space is one. And that's why I'm also fascinated. I don't understand quantum physics, but I'm fascinated by it. And the mindset, more the philosophical aspect of that, that it brings with it. Mm -hmm. Yes, in, indeed, inner and outer is one. Um, you know, the, the, the discipline you speak to in, in Zen training uh, is real in the sense that we say if you, um, you, if you want to do battle with the ego, better go in armed to the teeth because the, the ego, which is kind of writing or defining our story, or in a sense, I say, stealing our identity, making us think that's who we are, um, is uh, it's like the sun shining. It's so bright. You, it's so bright. You can't see the stars, you know, during the daytime. And if you want to see the stars, you somehow have to create conditions where the sun is not shining so bright. And in a way, that's the physical training of Zen is to create conditions where you can see through the ego, where you can see through what's going on rather than be spun around by it. And the uh, that, you know, I don't in my own teaching, I don't I don't use the stick so much in a way the stick represented something deep and old in Japanese culture and in training methods from the East. Um, when, when Zen has come to the West, I, uh, one, my Zen teacher's teacher, uh, Omori Sogan, a great Zen master from, from uh, Japan, um, you know, one of his admonitions was when, when he said, don't, don't hit Western people. They don't, they don't have any cultural context for this. They don't understand it. Or, or the cultural context they have is hideous. You know, it's, it's abusive. You know, it, it does, we don't have a way in the West to really understand that as a kindness, as you put it, Arash, you know, um, 
That said, though, the discipline is still there. How can you tame the ego in a way that you can see through it? Uh, it's so it's not it's intentionally not a comfortable training because if it were comfortable, you wouldn't be seen through anything. You know, the comfort zone by definition is what the ego recognizes itself as. So um, there is, a, without a doubt, it's, uh, it's making ourselves uncomfortable. And yet the freedom it opens us up to is, um, is beyond question. And I think in some ways that was part of what I hungered for, even as a little kid looking up into the stars or thinking about going into space was that freedom of, you know, like almost like breaking free from the bonds of earth or breaking free from gravity or breaking free, I think psychologically from the prison of self, the prison of ego. Yeah. Yes, and uh, you mentioned this, yes, the comfort zone. I think a lot of people are really just in their own bubble and they feel like this is my comfort zone, I will not cross it. But the expense of not feeling emotions, that expense of not looking for themselves, not finding themselves, and what I've learned is in my life, it's always through feeling uncomfortable when I lean into it, that's when the growth happens. Exactly. And the ego, as you say, would say, oh my God, don't go there. Don't go there. Right. And that's exactly what happened. That's how I took my first step because there was a part of me that said, no, don't go there. This is scary. And I said, no, you know what? I will go there. And it felt uncomfortable and it felt horrible for quite some time. But what there's the other side. And then you realize why did I not go there sooner, earlier, you know, in my life? And, um, and the discipline is, is there. I grew up in Germany, so I, I, I know about discipline. And one of the things I find that's uh, missing, and I, I live in Canada, but also North American culture, is there is the discipline there, but it's like um, up to a limit. And then uh, I don't cross that border or the comfort zone. And it's like always focused on the person, the individualism, me, my success, my company. And I don't see the world like that. I think it's like once you unite with others, you actually get much, much further and you get more success. And then you can take their success and actually bask in it and enjoy it even more. Yeah, yeah it really comes to a frame of who you think you are. If you think you're just this skin suit, you know, this skin suit self, then um, maybe I can be generous and kind to other people, but I still think of them as other. That's they're other, they're that's outside. That's but as you train in Zen and as you deepen into what's called a samadhi experience, you know, the, the condition that's cultivated in meditation, which we can't will, it's because the I that would will it is the very thing that gets dissolved in the process. So it's not a, it's not a prescription. But it's sort of like we can, by slowing down the breath and deepening in the body, creating a deep coherence of, of mind and body with a deep, slow breath, that sometimes, I'll say, grace happens and the, and the universe opens and you sense a very different sense of self where you are the whole picture. You, you sense yourself as the whole picture. You feel the earth moving through you. You feel the stars moving through you. You feel yourself moving in all dimensions. Those kinds of experiences are unforgettable. And, and they shift how we think about our life and ourself. You start to see, yeah, I can use this ego as a tool <laughs> and to live this life. I have these hands and this voice and I can use it in service of the whole picture rather than trying to use this whole picture to protect myself it flips around entirely and uh, i i like the word flip that it's like a, kind of like a switch that that kind of turns on and everything becomes clear one of my misunderstandings of, of buddhism and zen buddhism might have been the uh, the ego because um i thought of get rid of the ego but then i seeing like it's the ego is doing its part. I mean, the ego is trying to keep you safe. And it's like more a way of work with the ego, not eliminate, don't kill it, but try to, you know, become friends with it. And like this, this company that I say, if you work together with everybody, the CEO with all the employees, that's when you can go further ahead. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? So more kind of an alliance than just like, I get rid of you. 
of being. I get rid of you. Well, you can't really get rid of the ego. You know, it, it is part of the, it is part of what comes with the meat soup, you know, <laughs> so, and it is necessary to integrate our experience. And as you say, to keep us alive, you know, to keep us safe, you know, it's, it has a job to do. It's trying to keep us alive, but it's perception of life and death is hugely distorted. You know, you might think that it would, it would really just register fear or anxiety under real life and death circumstances, like if someone had a, you know, a sword at my neck. But truthfully, it perceives everything as kind of thumbs up or thumbs down, thumbs up or thumbs down, you know. So even those kind of comfort zone steps that you talked about earlier, like you're a little leery to go out on a limb here with this person, or you feel a little afraid of something, the ego wants to hold us back um, because it, its modus operandus is sort of, if I'm not actively being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, keep things just like they are. Mm -hmm. And it, because it doesn't actually exist, it only exists in reference to all the things it knows itself by, sort of like mooring lines. It doesn't want to cut those lines. So it can freeze frame our life. It can hold us in stories from the past. And that's why in Zen, it can feel like a battle with the ego because you're going in and you start cutting those lines and the ego's going, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, stop already. You're killing me, you know, and you go have it again, <laughs> you know, cut it again, cut it again. So in a way, it's that what you described earlier, that point of where you go, do I go in or out to this fear? Do I penetrate it or do I back away and pretend it's not there? That point is reached again and again in Zen training. And if we back away the the ego reverts in a way to its previous form it holds its previous form if we penetrate something new can happen and so the way this is sometimes described in zen training is that when you first start training the mountains are the mountains the rivers are the rivers you know it, it, i am i you are you everything looks that way when you get into the training the mountains aren't the mountains you are you i'm not you know everything gets confused and, and interpenetrating and and shifting and then on the other side of it, mountains are again mountains, and, and we again can function in the world. The, there's a different sense, though, and it's that flip around that um, we were talking about a moment ago, of where instead of reacting to the world outside in for how it might keep me alive, which is a losing proposition, I start to say, how can I use this life to serve this world? So it inverts. And in that the ego becomes a tool rather than a tyrant early on it's a tyrant it becomes a tool so it's not but the transition zone is messy and confusing and that's why in zen very good to work with a teacher because in that messy confusing time it's hard to navigate that because of all the kind of questions you come up with it you know am i am i being too easy on myself or too hard you know is that i'm all confused you know just like with psychoanalysis you can get into territory where you need you need real wisdom to guide you and and so it also happens in zen training yeah yeah and uh and and, and that's 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 absolutely true that um because there was there's this fear that people generally have also meditation because i i've, I've had other interviews with uh with one person she would say no meditation is is dangerous right you are opening yourself up and uh, I'm thinking, like she says, like, there is evil in the world. And it's like, I want to explore that because to an extent, yes, there are people do horrible things, but I don't know if it's per se like the idea of a devil or is that just really our projection that we put into the world? And um, I would have nightmares of, of fear that would show up, uh, try to attack me. And then slowly it disappeared. And then there was once there was a knock at the door and I opened, there was nobody there. And it's like, okay, I, I'm getting better. I, my dreams are like you know, evolving in that sense. And um, I, there's also a study I, I read recently that meditation and mindfulness will increase your anxiety. So something that is the opposite. And yes, of course, because uh, when you are anxious, because you are facing your demons and you are trying to get rid of them, and you will go through what seems like hell, like seems like losing your mind. And what, what gave uh, me a comfort was reading uh, uh, about Zen. And it said like, when you feel like you're losing your mind, that's okay, don't worry, you're on the right path. And it's like, you know, it gives you a sense of comfort. Yes, keep going, don't be discouraged. This is your ego, five-year-old ego being afraid of spirit. 
and, and in in some ways, Arash, we, you know, to the point that your other interviewer had mentioned, oh, this can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. My own experience is people don't open things up until they're ready. You know, you you open you, you open yeah. it up when you're ready, and that in some ways, what we're building through the physical practice of Zen training, you know, this deep hara breathing, hara being the lower center, the lower abdomen, what we're building in this is a container for the internal combustion of the ego. You know, we're building a very safe container. So it's not like you're starting with, you know, for, for somebody who's barely hanging on, Zen is, is probably not the medicine they want to take. You know, it, it, it's, there's probably other things to do that help will help them more. But for somebody who's, who's fairly stable, Zen, but has real doubt, real questions about life, is really pushing the edge of what's this all about, or what am I all about, or what's my life all about. For that kind of person, the Zen training is going to be, uh, is, it is going to improve concentration and it's going to help them settle down and reduce anxiety and do all the things that literally thousands of research papers have shown can come through meditation. Um, immune system gets better. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, I was a childhood asthmatic. I couldn't even breathe for the first, <laughs> first 20 years of my life. And so part of what it gave me was my health. You know, it gave me a much better, a much better way to to uh, be and breathe in the world. So um, it, the, those things will happen too. And when you have a good container to work with, you can really, it, it can be knocked around some and good things can happen. Well, one thing I've uh, just finished a, a summer class on existential analysis, uh, a summer webinar, and um, Viktor Frankl has, has written some amazing stuff. And one of the things that he's done is he does the, the shift and he says, don't ask life about the meaning, but it's actually the other way around. There is, life is asking your meaning. What's your purpose in this life? Not the other way around. And so by putting the onus on, on me, I have to figure out what is my purpose and by doing that that's when you get closer to your to your inner self you know to your true self uh, behind all the things that you think you are and you're right basically what you know that that brings us really to resonance you know to bring at least that your comment brings me to resonance because um that that has uh, i mean that's the the book that i have coming out in a couple of weeks but it's really been consuming for me in the last year to write and to be living and breathing resonance. But what, why it, why resonance and purpose go together so much for me is that, is that when, when you think about the human being, what you, Arash, or me, Ginny, naturally vibrate with, or what, what ideas catch our interest, whether it's philosophy or physics or this career or that blog, what catches our interest or makes us resonate um, means there's some way in which we as a system are interacting with an energy in the field, you know, in our condition, in our environment. And the mistake I believe that people make in purpose is they try to solve it in their head. They try to go up and think about a purpose statement or a mission statement, or I'm going to figure this out cognitively. Whereas the, the, the real purpose or the significance of you in this life right now emerges through your entire mind-body being. What truly resonates with you? What calls you? What, uh, and then the mind can interpret that or can put language to that and, and derive a purpose. But our real sense of a purpose with integrity, integration through our entire system derives from the things we resonate with and what we feel in a sense called to do. What is my work to do? What is your work to do? And that can be discovered in many layers. It can be moment by moment. In this conversation, what's our purpose? You know, what is my purpose in talking to you or yours in talking to me? It's how we're resonating together that that purpose emerges. And we might put some language to it and that, you know, oh, the purpose is, you know, for Roger's blog or Ginny's book or whatever, but, that the significance of us being here right now emerges as a natural 
result of how we vibrate with these conditions mm -hmm. and the things that match us that make us most resonant you know um are the things that where we can make our greatest contribution yes so, um the you know to me we find our the purpose emerges as this instrument this body mind instrument we are can resonate at its best and you might think well we always resonate at our best but no your own life has shown you how your wellness changes how you resonate, mm -hmm. how you resonate 50 pounds lighter or 30 pounds lighter, or how you resonate when you're, when I used to have asthma and I don't, those are different frequencies in this system and a different signal that we put into the world. And out of that arises different purposes that can emerge through our life. There's so much I want to comment upon because this is uh, this I've been working on. So one of, one of the main thing is what you mentioned felt experiences and feeling. Um, in today's world, we are all our heads and the, the cognitive behavioral uh, movement and therapy and so on is okay, but it's very superficial in my point of view. And this is why I like psychoanalysis because it's, it's more holistic. You are entering into not only yourself, but into the time zones, right? So we're looking at the past, at how the past is influencing our, our present and our future, how this is accumulating and we have trauma that's affecting our body that's lodged in there and that's causing all these diseases. Me as well, I, I suffer from apnea still. I suffer from diabetes, but I, I was able to really make an improvement. And I think I, I'm fine that now not through medication, something that my doctor would, would push and say, okay, here's a medication, you need to take this. And I said, no, I had high blood pressure, but now I'm fine. So it's that realization that again, the mind and body are, are connected with each other, they're linked. A lot of um, psychosomatic disorders are because they're not in tune because there's your body on one side and your mind on the other, and they don't even communicate with each other. And it's causing all these these issues, and a lot of chronic conditions are uh, psychosomatic in nature. And this is this came from a neurologist, and I was like fascinated to read that the science is behind it. And so, in in uh, existential analysis, we talk about movement and what moves me, what resonates with me, because it's touching my essence. I, for me, it's philosophy, but also I see the limits of philosophy, and I say, I prefer the koan. I prefer the part where it's like, no, I cannot give you an answer because the answer is impossible. Mm -hmm. right? It's trying to like fit something into something that just does not fit. And no matter how much you stuff it or push it, it won't fit. And so knowing that and finding a balance and finding like what it is that's really true to me, that's why I cannot, I don't subscribe to a religion or even a, a philosophical movement because I'm thinking there's always limits there. The moment you say, this is the way, I was like, no, bye, you know, <laughs> like, you can't be right. You know? So it's, it's, it's that, that the struggle, the doubt and so on that you mentioned. And uh, also the, the past history, this, met, this led to this moment. Me, uh, I was a kid, as a kid, I would hide under um, a table because I felt safe there. But I was in, in Iran as a, as, a, as a boy there, and um, there was the war going on. And so I would hide because I couldn't communicate. I didn't speak the language at the time. I, I, I lived in the US for four years, my first four years of my life. And then we went back. And so when there was a, a raid, a bomb raid, people would come under the table as well. It's like, oh, so you're joining my world now. That feels good, you know? <laughs> and it's like, and that, and your closet experience, I see somehow a parallel, I don't know, in the closed spaces. And now here we are many years later, but in the same path, in the same moment, synch synchronous through uh, um, technology, which is also amazing. Uh, you're in your spot, I'm in my spot, and we're communicating about things that have, that has been, we've been struggling with, we've been uh, trying to find uh, uh, meaning in all of this and we found uh, a, a solution that I think both of us are eager to share with others. Look, <laughs> it's like the, the uh, Plato's cave where you come out and uh, you say, no, guys, guys, look, there's look. something else there. Look, wake up. <laughs> uh, wake up. Yeah. Um, it, it, what you say is true. I do, I do really hope that Resonate opens doors for people that you can say, look, look, you know, you have this instrument to work with. You are, you, and when you 
integrate it, you know, remove some of those breaks you talk about where mind and body aren't agreeing or they're not even connected or communicating. When we tune it, when we get rid of the tight strings and the tension that makes us a little too high strung. <laughs> and when we can relax into, I, I call it a natural state, then the way this body-mind system vibrates and what it resonates with exactly is the significance of us being in that field. Exactly it is what we can do in that moment. You know, I, I say resonance is a fact. It is not an option. But how we resonate is where we have some choice by how we integrate, tune, and tune the body and then tame the ego. How we do those things is going to change how we literally vibrate as an energetic material instrument in the world, <laughs> which is what we are. That's our differentiated self. When we can vibrate with universal energy, then what we can do is bring that through a particular portal, if you will, into the world of everyday affairs, into the human world of Canada or Germany or Iran or, or, or the United States, wherever we are. It's also that, that confidence. And it's something that um, I've lacked in the past, but I think that a lot of people are lacking because when I, when I see them speak, when I see them talk, like even people who say they're confident, and I can, I can look through them and say, no, you're not. Or even when we have a, a cognitive a scientist and psychologist who, who do a talk, and I look at them and I say, no, you, you're talking about anxiety, but I see you are anxious yourself. So why should I trust your path? You know, and I, this should be the inner and outer should be the same. If you're preaching someone, I want you to embody it. Mm -hmm. And uh, in which, uh, which you are, I, I, have, I watched uh, videos of you and you seem you are Zen to me in, in my mind. I mean, I think like you are truly practicing what you're saying. And there are a lot of people who don't. And it just frustrates me. I remember a dentist I had who, um, who was, I went to and he had crooked teeth and I was like, I don't know if I trust you. you know? and, <laughs> you fix, yeah, I was like, if you can't <laughs> fix your own teeth, then how are you going to fix me? And I feel the same way with a lot of psychologists, with a lot of counselors. You know, it's, I, I, I can't buy it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I think people are doing about the best they can, but one of the illusions that we live with and I think it starts very young in our life, Arash, is that we could somehow manufacture an outside appearance, even if we feel differently on the inside. You know, sometimes little kids will do this because they, they learn it's, you know, Alexander Genoff, the primal scream guy used to talk about it as the split, you know, the split between what I project into the world, but how I really feel inside that uh, I can become a good little actor or actress. You know, I'm the good kid on the outside and inside I'm going, you know, or, or, I, um, or being out of touch with our feelings, as you say, as we, as we differentiate, we get up in our heads a lot. Maybe we're out of touch with the real emotions. We have no words for them. But in this split between um, what we project to the world and we might talk a good line, you know, and what's really going on in the body, we weaken ourselves. You know, we're, we can't be at full strength. We, our bell can't ring its true note. You know, it's always a little bit, you know, to a discerning ear like yours, mm, feels off. You know, the walk and the talk don't match. The, the tennis with the crooked teeth. Um, but the job of integrating is, it's a little bit like maybe you felt as a teenager and you go like, do I want to do all that work? And, and I tell people, you know, it's not like it's separate from your life. Just make it your life, you know, just find ways in your life every day to see how can I breathe a little slower and more deeply. You have to breathe anyway, why not get it right? You know, it doesn't have to, you don't have to go to the mountaintop and, you know, for, for 30 years. How in, in the constellation of your life right now can you be a little more centered, a little more caring, a little more um, connected to the people you talk with that, um, how can you be a little more connected to the earth? How can you feel that a little more through your own feet, through your own sitting here right now? Yeah. I, I think it's humility too that often is missing. And the just the projection of like, I am tough and I will not show any weakness. And I think you will find that a lot in leadership positions because yeah. they're afraid 
of showing any vulnerability because then that in, in their mind, it discredits them. And probably it does for the rest of society who is also deluded. And uh, we just need to see the presidential debate to, to, to notice that. And it's like, this is not helping. And this yeah. is not getting neither yourself, nor the country, nor the people forward. It's like actually taking steps back. Taking steps. And, and that humility is missing in, in many cultures. And we, uh, especially in, in North America, I find it's just um, success, being tough, and um, projecting something that you are not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you're you're exactly right. And it, and it gets. It can even be viewed. Humility can be viewed as a weakness, you know, <laughs> it, it versus um, that machismo, you know, as being the strength or the invulnerability, or never let them see you sweat, or never let them, you know, that, that kind of thing. I, you're exactly right. And we are going through an era where, amidst all the turbulence, we see the emergence of these strongman leaders, you know, these these invulnerable leaders, you know, that that people have a sense well they seem to know where they're going and if they if we don't have a lot of sensitivity you know to whether they have crooked teeth or not they may look like a pretty good dentist to us you know uh, but they seem to they seem to have answers they don't seem to doubt themselves i doubt myself but that person doesn't doubt themselves so they must be right you know no <laughs> no actually no um i remember scott peck used a great psychologist you know scott peck who wrote the roadless travel years ago but he also wrote a book about evil and one of his definitions of evil was um the unwillingness i mean to to doubt oneself you know when you're certain when you're absolutely certain absolutely in impenetrably certain you're right a lot of evil springs from that <laughs> yeah well descartes started with doubt and that's the the modern philosophy where we doubt everything everything we can doubt but then what the effect was, then the, the body and mind got separated and we have the, the, the dual system that is causing so much harm. So in, in a way it was just hijacked into a different uh, direction. And I think without doubt, you can't have certainty and you need to go through that. The same way like through, through hard work, you need to work hard. Things are not handed to you and things take effort. Good things take effort. Good things but take the good thing is, the good news is that there is justice, I think, there is karma, and I think that things fall into place and you will get where you want to be, even if it's not uh, on an outer level, at least in an inner level, because you say, I am healthy or I'm healthier. And uh, in my case, I am happier. And I didn't know uh, how much I was missing out when I was living in a state that was up to a point. And it's like, okay, everything is nice. But now it's everything is beautiful, everything is amazing, everything, and you gain in curiosity. And uh, I fell for that, and I was in that mode. And it's like, now I see there's so much more, and there's so much more that I haven't seen yet. And that is the humility, it's like, but as, as somebody who, who likes to have answers, like, yeah, I got this, you know, and I want to share it with people. And then that's when you go to the Zen master and say, no, you do. <laughs> go back. <laughs> Don't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then we can be a real wall of no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I've come to appreciate that. I was like, um, and before I'd be like, no, who are you to tell me that? But that humility is like, okay, <laughs> thanks, you know. And, and the other thing is ex uh, escaping negative experiences because I've had my best, but actually best experiences, quote unquote, because it didn't seem like it at the time because of things that were negative that happened to me that I didn't like. But through that, that was the incentive. That was the whole move as well to say, I got to change something. I got to deal with my stress. My job is not everything. I am more than my job. And it's like, once you put it into place, it's just like so calm, so relaxing. You feel like, okay, I'm free. And that is for me, the idea of freedom. There's so much distortion in what represents freedom. If I don't wear a mask, I'm free. No, you're enslaved to an idea that is doing yourself harm. You're not free at all, right? Yeah. And so in that kind of freedom, I think it's, it's, it's really missing. Yeah. Freedom no, and responsibility, I think, uh, hand in hand. My, uh, one of my Zen teachers once said, there are two great teachers in life, suffering and meditation. 
I prefer meditation, he added, but, but as you point out, it's not when everything's humming along beautifully that we learn our deepest life lessons. It's in the suffering. And, and in a way, um, if we can look to the difficulties, even that we're facing right now in society as opportunities for learning. And I don't mean to be like rose colored glasses about it. I mean, really, <laughs> we're being shaken in ways that are, are inviting us to leaps of development if we can use them, if we can learn from this suffering, not only individually, but collectively, we could leap to a place of consciousness that is um, a, a different stage, you know, a different stage of human development. Uh, or, we could tear ourselves apart, you know, and, and we'll see which way it goes. We'll see which way it goes. But if we can, you know, is the suffering going to chew us up or are we going to use it to evolve? I, I see the whole situation too with COVID as a Zen master. It's like, now deal with this, you know, this is your suffering. What are you going to do with it? Yeah, and it, do? and it, it does, it does break up many things, like many projections, many, it, points of hypocrisy where people pretend to be one way or pretend to care about their families or others and so on. It's, it's, it's bubbling out. It's like all this like subconscious or unconscious, it's like coming out and it's ugly in many ways, but it's also beautiful if we can, as you say, if we can take the right path and, and learn from it and not, the, uh, not run away from these uncomfortable feelings, the, the suffering that is happening right now globally Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so many people are getting crushed in this pandemic. Uh, I was reading an article yesterday that it has set back world poverty advances by decades. You know, that in terms of number of people thrown into poverty, it has unwound a couple of decades of progress. Um, or in, even in the, the, the relatively wealthy United States, the difference between people who can kind of weather this storm and, and, and people who are losing jobs is just horrific in terms of um, the, how the, the pandemic is affecting people. So there's plenty of suffering to go around. And, and the really, for people who see it, there's a call. I mean, again, they talk about resonance. There's a call to how can we use this time to raise the level for all people? Um, how do we use this time? Because it's exposing what's broken in our systems that's, too. That's exactly it. It's exposing. And it's like, it was already broken. We just, it was it, already, it, but whoa. Now you'd have to be willfully ignorant not to see it. You, you'd really have to, you know, just go you know, like, <laughs> La, 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 you know, to, to block it out because it's so in our face. Um, so now that we see it, how do we let it change us? And how do we let it change how, what institutions we support and how we rework the story of certain institutions or the laws here or the policies there? How do we shift things in ways that we, we embrace a story we're going into rather than live a story from the past that is so broken? <laughs> I, I'm also curious about the, the how of uh, how are you uh, approaching uh, healing and what would you do for 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 clients and what do you do with the leaders you work with so kind of uh, some specifics as well as I read about Fabi I think is that the work of Hans uh, I think that you're building on is that his personality types or um, if you can give me some information about, I'm more curious about the specifics of, uh, of your approach and the philosophical, I know, I think I, we absolutely resonate on that. I just like to know the, the details. Specifics, sure. Yeah. Sure. Just starting with Phoebe, um, when I first started taking leadership courses, we, we would take personality tests like Myers-Briggs or DISC or, you know, there were a lot of them out there. And as soon as I took one, I thought, well, this is a very interesting that you can measure personality and B, where's the body in this, you know, because by then I'd already been training in martial arts and Zen and I knew the body and mind are one. So why was this so cognitive? It was like personality started at the neck or something. I couldn't quite place it. And the beauty in bringing in the body is as soon as you make something physical, you make it trainable, you make it practicable. So it's hard to grab hold of thought and, you know, hold on to your next thought. Well, it's going to slip away. You know, attention roves. You know, if thought doesn't just hang on, you can't just turn that thought around. And you know, it, it's, it's slippery. 
-hmm. But when you work with the body, you can turn things around. You can shift from this physical pattern to that physical pattern in the nervous system once you know what they are. So I started writing about this and it was, and, and uh, it, it led to my first book on body learning, but my first book, which I don't, which uh, is, is back quite a while ago and I call it a starter effort. I don't recommend it, but it led to a wonderful person, Elizabeth Wetzig, who taught me about these patterns in the nervous system that have been known since the 1930s. And they were four fundamental patterns that have to do with the order in which nerves fire muscles. And they, they, they also relate to our resonance, our frequency of vibration, because they, have, they change how much tension is in the body and how it attenuates or focuses energy. So at one extreme, I'm very, I'm really focused down on you now, and it's kind of laser beam focused, very targeted, but my nervous system has lost peripheral vision at this point. It's really pressing forward versus 180 degree vision. This is opening up lateral thinking, temporal lobes, big picture ideation. Those are two different patterns and there are two in between. So the Phoebe, I said, well, where's the book on this? And she said, why don't we write it? And that led to Move to Greatness, which is the book that came out in the, in the 2000, 2008. But it also, I wanted to have an instrument for leadership programs that would measure these patterns. So my husband, who's a psychologist, and I developed one. And we put it through all its psychometric paces and validated it over the years. Um, both with respect to other personality models and other feedback from other people, you know, like, like when you get rated by your coworkers and then you take the Phoebe, we could compare notes that way. And, and what we developed was an instrument that links mind, body, and behaviors. So it takes, to take the instrument, it's kind of like a, a, any other personality instrument. You can do it on a computer or pencil and paper but it gives you information about these patterns in your nervous system that connect your physicality with your emotions, your thought processes, and the way you would do things as a leader. And of course, all four patterns are essential for a different aspect of leadership. And together they, they round out the toolkit. So when you understand the framework, you know, I use this energy at this time, that energy at that time, even though you and I will have some preferences. Just like I have a preference for what hand I pick up the pen with. So I learned in the Phoebe what my preferences are, but I also learned how to reclaim any pattern that would be helpful to me for something I'm facing right now. And then to go to your second question about healing, it, that in some ways is, uh, um, a, you know, some of, some of what um, throws us into a lack of wellness or a lack of wholeness is when we get terribly lopsided. You know, for example, the characteristic type A personality, you know, where I've got to achieve and I set this goal and I set a goal and I go after it and I have to achieve it. That kind of relentless ambition, which comes out of that uh, two of the patterns, the patterns of execution, we call them. Um, if it isn't balanced by the other two is going to lead to a lot of difficulty. You know, I, as I tell people, uh, my wonderful father uh, had his first heart attack at age 48, operating too much out of this intensity, right? And so there's a kind of wellness that comes in as we learn in our own bodies how to use the right energy at the right time. So we're not trying to uh, push against cement walls. We're finding a way around. You know, we're not trying, to, we're, we're finding a rhythm with life and how to use the right energy at the right time. There are also other modalities of healing that run very deep in our Zen tradition because um, one of my teachers was very, was a, a very uh, healing practice was a part of his tradition. And he taught it to some people who made it part of their tradition, including the great Dub Lee, who had worked with Rolf and Feldenkrais and then learned all this energy work from Tenoi Roshi, who, had, who was the senior Zen master where I had trained. And he put together a system of healing that uh, really reconstructs the body. And it's, uh, it, it, it was, he called it Zen body therapy. It also is called integral body work is another related school of this. It's a system I've trained in, but, but um, there are, because we often bring this into our, our Zen training and our dojo training that you understand how to do this. Um, but what you learn in this is how to work the whole body as a system to free up stuck trauma whose somatic signature is in the body and, and in freeing that up 
um, the structure, the function, the energy of the system can return to its natural state. And that's exactly where we meet again, because that is the, the stuck the trauma is the goal of, of psychoanalysis of making the unconscious conscious. And then once it, it comes out, we can deal with it and we get rid of it actually, because it's stuck and it that's needs right. to be flowing freely and moving flowing freely. Yes. That's <laughs> and, right. uh, yeah, and it's actually what, what you mentioned is absolutely true with uh, that's my idea of, of, of freedom and joy that when you feel that the world opens up. And um, just a simple example, I, I have Twitter and there are many moments where I'm focused, like, what should I tweet? And I don't know. And I'm, I'm, I'm really like stressed about it. And then other moments where like, oh, yeah, there are so many options. And this is a frame of thinking where when we're too focused on something, like you said, we don't see all the other options that are there. And um, we, a lot of us fall into that trap. And it's trying to, as you say, train the body, and I would say more train the mind to, 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 to open that up and to, to see the whole picture. And that, yes, it's not if somebody criticizes you, it's not a personal attack on you, on your being, on your personality. It's just their view of things, which is fine whether it's right or wrong, it's, it's okay. And that kind of like acceptance too of uh, what is surrounding us. And then the next step of how to deal with it, but also being like uh, really realizing this is what's happening and being able to say, okay, these are my flaws. And a lot of us will ignore the flaws because we don't want to see them. We don't, we don't want to admit to them. We, we ignore them and that is not, not helping in any way because they fester and grow bigger and disrupt the whole system. And, and, and that's how I see it. So with leaders, it's not just here um, one way of doing things. So you're basically giving different channels. So this is the mode I should be in right now in this situation. And then this situation uh, requires me to be more uh, empathic, this situation to be more forceful. Is it something like this? Do I understand this correctly? Well, that's, that's certainly one of the tools that we give to leaders is how they can work with the four energy patterns and use the one at the one, run at the right time. Um, other tools that we'll use uh, relate to things you've mentioned earlier, how to work with your fears, how to work with the things that hold you back or self-limiting beliefs or upper limit problems. There is, go by different terms in the literature, but how you can recognize those in yourself and get close to them. So you're starting to actually um, see through them, you know, and, and it's not that they'll necessarily dissipate overnight, but they'll quit festering, to use your word. They'll quit festering or becoming the thing you trip over again and again. Uh, so we work with fears a lot. We work with how to do these reframes, these flips from coping with life to how I co-create with the energy around me. From seeing one point of view to understanding how to work with paradox and how to uh, how to get to higher level truths through the opposition of right points of view. We work with how out there is mirrored in here and how you change in here to change out there. We work with influence of how you can become the other, go from there. So everything we do in Zen leadership applies the principles of Zen to what leaders need to do to be heard, influential, successful on their goals, and bringing the future into the present. I mean, that's what leaders do. So we apply the depth of Zen training into the practicality of what leaders need to do. Um, to, to, I, wanna, I wanna say it goes beyond being successful. It's to realize their purpose. It's to manifest what they're here to do. And, and, and success. I mean, it's like we're looking at it, uh, often people look at it in terms of how much money you have and uh, or how much fame you have. And, and those things, like, essentially is not success at all. It gives the illusion of success. But uh, when we look at, at people who have, uh, who are successful, quote unquote, um, we see their lives is not much happier in, in many cases, and sometimes even worse. So it's, it's also that realization that, yes, okay, I am successful right now talking to you and whatever happens, if it's more, that's great. If it's not, that's fine too. But you do want to have that, that push and drive of fulfilling yourself 
and of becoming more, of uh, looking for more. And that is a satisfaction, I think, that personal satisfaction, the ego gets satisfied. Yes, yes, I've overcome my fears. I've, I've grown because of these experiences or because of my efforts. And uh, I, yeah. Well, and as you said earlier, it's, it's good to have flow or to, for, for things not to be stuck or stagnant. I think it's just natural as a biological system. We feel better when things are, when we're, there's movement, you know, when there's a sense of, of um, uh, where we can move freely between being and becoming, between, you know, doing and, and receiving, you know, where we can, we can naturally work with the energy of life and respond in a natural way. D Dan Siegel would characterize it as, as growth is or uh, harmony and wellness is characterized by flow and harmony flow and harmony rather and uh, whereas difficulty is characterized by a stuckness by chaos or rigidity chaos or rigidity so flow and harmony flow and harmony is going to keep us moving in some direction just like water you know flow has a direction and what is that direction it's, it's the direction of our most significant life and flow has come into psychology and people are using those terms, which is a, a great improvement to the previous methods of seeing things as stuck, you know, and you're basically That's stuck right. with this or do you need medication or, and now it's that kind of like flow is like, let's, let's open it up more. And one of the things I, I, I was always uh, dubious about um, positive psychology or people who misuse positive psychology is gives, giving these messages like, yes, you are yourself, you are very important and so on, but without giving the tools or even the, the claim of be yourself. And then I ask myself, well, how? I don't know. I need somebody to tell me or give me the tools to get there. And that's when you mentioned uh, a Zen master or even like any type of um, philosophy, if you like, or psychology or psychoanalysis in my case, that gives you that this is how to do it. For me to lose weight, they say, okay, lose weight. It's like, well, how? And I found intermittent fasting, which really made a difference because what it did, it showed me control. I'm in control here about my food and I can eat or not eat. And the trick is now to listen to my body and just follow it. It's like, okay, when it tells me I'm hungry now, you should eat, right? And not to try to overwhelm it too much. But these are tools I think that are missing. And I am working on a book too, uh, um, on these uh, these issues on health and wellness, but I'm the guinea pig, so I, I still haven't reached the point I'd like to be. I'm more than halfway there, I'd like to say. So, uh, but um, yeah. but yeah, once I get rid of my uh, uh, apnea as well, and the, like as you said, my also asthma and stuff, I think then I, I feel that's going to be the sign for me. It's like yes, now you fixed your crooked teeth. Now you can speak <laughs> to the world, you know, and that's that's what I'm hoping. For. Good for you, because it is really the holes we climb out of that we can be helpful to people who are in those holes. And uh, one of the things is when they say the sky's the limit, I mean, I think you would agree that that's not true. It's not the limit, you know, as, as somebody who is also interested in outer space, I think that's just part of it. There is so much more beyond it. So that expression needs to be updated in, in cases when you've, you've reached understanding and realization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I and I I'm not sure. I, when you say the sky's the limit, I'm not sure exactly what that means. You know, I'm not sure that the way it forms meaning in my mind is the same as in your mind or in you know somebody else's mind. Um, the the there's a odd kind of paradox that becomes evident, though that in some ways we all fall into or follow natural law. Not everything is possible, you know, action and reaction. There's gonna be certain things that are playing out right now whose conditions were long in place and they're gonna play out, you know, whether you or I like it or not. And there's a way of meeting the moment with creativity that also can change trajectories. I mean, both are true. And so, um, there's also a way uh, that limitlessness can work through a limited self, where infinity or universality can work through a differentiated pair of hands and feet and voice and, 
and blogging. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So how to bring that through us. Um, to me, that's, it's not for the ego. It's not the ego for whom the sky's the limit. You know, it's not that. It's when something can come through us, um, that something, that universality knows no bounds. And then we can say it through language because whatever, and you say my interpretation, your interpretation, whatever we say is limited, but the, uh, it, what we experience is the unlimited feeling, the infinity, and we try to clothe it in, in, in words. And that's, that's something I've been uh, quite impressed with, with, with Zen, where it says, you no, know, it's language is the tool. And it does not perfect tool. An imperfect tool, but <laughs> an it's imperfect for God. Yeah, I know, but we use it anyway. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Thank you so much for, for the conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, um, I'd love to stay in contact. I, I uh, Joel sent me your email. It's uh, if, if you're okay, I can contact you once in a while if, if you're fine with it. And uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you yeah. so much. Good luck with your book. And um, uh, once it comes out, I, I can't wait to, to read it. And good, good. It, Please help rare. people find it. <laughs> yeah, it's rare. And uh, it's rare that I find uh, your, myself attuned with, um, with actually everything you're saying. I, I didn't find any, any sort of criticism on my part. And when I saw that the, the word Zen itself, it's like, I have to talk to Dr. Tini <laughs> Whitelaw. I mean, and uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you so wonderful. much. Well, thank you. Take care. Yeah, take care. Bye. Bye. Oh my goodness.